This episode of Right at the Fork is brought to you by Zupan's Markets. We're pleased to have them uh, with us. We're honored, actually. They're such a cool, it's such a cool store. Yeah, a store that's been in the Portland area for over 40 years. I mean, it's, it's as Portland as Portland gets. Uh, I don't think you can find a, a market that is as local and has been here as long. They've got four locations. Well, actually, let me say this, Chris. I'm going to go on and say they have five locations because you got West Burnside, Southeast Belmont, McAdam, and Lake Oswego, but they've also got Zupans.com. That's true. That's your you fifth location. There. I'll tell you, I stopped by one of them last week on a Friday, mm-hmm. and I didn't realize this was just they do this on Friday, and I had a little guacamole tasting. Yeah. It was fantastic. They do that every Friday, and uh, as a matter of fact, Jennifer... The woman that was serving me the guacamole suggested I didn't need to have it on chips, and I got some Ken's bread. Oh. And had a, had a little on that yeah. over the weekend. Very it was nice. fantastic. I do enjoy that, because you go there, and they, you're, you're able to taste the best that uh, Oregon has to offer. Mm. And then you're and also- you're not just saying that. I mean, no. the quality is second to none. Absolutely. And by the way, it's not as expensive as one might think nope. when you're buying that kind of quality. It's- uh, it's really a nice experience going into any of the Zupans. That's right. And here's something to think about in the month of September. It's the Remembering Our Founder Month at Zupans Markets, where they're celebrating the life of Zupans uh, Markets founder, John Zupan. And they've been doing this for uh, a few years now, where they've raised over $600,000 for local trauma services. Uh, basically, as people go through the checkout, they can donate to this uh, Remembering Our Founder Month. Another good reason to stop in Zupans. We're just tickled, and, and I don't say that lightly, that uh, Zupans has decided to to sponsor our podcast, Court. Welcome back to Right at the Fork. This is Portland's Food Scene Podcast with your host, Chris Angelus from Portland Food Adventures. That's me. Yeah, that's you. And I'm Court Johnson from uh, the Kink Morning Show on 101.9 Kink. Isn't it? I'm so glad we have a real professional broadcaster here. I I appreciate you saying that, Chris, and (laughs) I'll continue to say this. I'm only professional because I get paid to do it every day and I... Can't, that's can't quite def- figure out why. That's the definition of professional, <laughs> but I will say that you're that that you're polished and and fun to have on the podcast. I'm so glad since since you've been on the podcast, more people are listening. Isn't that cool? Well, I, the, sure, I'll, and I'll I'll take that as a direct result of me. <laughs> and and I'm, should I take that as a uh, no? What should I? Th- well, should you I should I take not that? take it anyway, Chris. <laughs> uh, but I will tell you this: uh, thank thank you for listening to the podcast. Please share this with your friends. Subscribe. Uh, would also be uh, beneficial to you because you'll just wake up on a Wednesday and there'll be a podcast downloaded to wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, you can also uh, give us a review. That would be much appreciated, whether it be on Stitcher, on uh, iTunes Podcasting, or Google. If if you haven't realized this, you can now get our podcast through Google Play. Oh, cool. So a lot of I think a lot of people on Google phones, like yourself, had to go to Stitcher or TuneIn Radio or SoundCloud. But uh, now they have a podcasting function, which... Uh, you can now find right at the fort. Cool. Uh, I'm excited about today's guest on the show today because uh, I, w- when I first started working in Portland in the building we are now, like I didn't have a parking pass here, so I would park up the street and I would o- oftentimes park right next to to Higgins, and I would see people in there and be like, oh, one day I'll go there. Yeah. Have you been there yet? I have. I have been there. Yeah. Oh, good. I have been there, and I know when. You know, oftentimes, my wife, who is way more important than I am in the radio business. She oftentimes will do drinks or business lunches there. Yeah, Heather and I used to do our podcast recap meetings right. at Higgins after we did the podcast. Ooh, we should do there. that. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Love to do that. But here's the thing. If you don't know this already, and many of the li- m- many listeners would know this, Greg Higgins is one of the most important people in our incredible food world. Yeah. It's, a lot of it started with, with people like Greg, but also Greg himself. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, he indicates in the podcast he started at the Heathman in 1984. Yeah. That's a, that's a couple of years ago. 30, 32, to be the exact. Is it 32? Yeah, 32. Then 22 years ago. No. Yeah. Oh, yeah, 22 80, years ago. 84 at the Heathman. This is not 94. a math podcast. 
No, but I'm going to do it in my head right here. Right now, 22 years ago, he opened Higgins, mm-hmm. and uh, it has been, and we talk about it, he doesn't do a lot of promotion. He is, it is what it is. Yeah. He is very organic. He grows a lot of his own produce. He makes his own, a lot of his own cheese, yeah. and he's had relationships with farmers uh, that are far more extensive than most people in town here, and, uh, and certainly knows a lot of the lore as well. But I think it's really cool that he came on this podcast so that people would know he's alive and kicking, right. and not dead. Quite, quite literally. I think that's <laughs> that's why what he said he, he came on for. I thought it would be really cool for anybody in town for feast this week. This we there's no one more appropriate to be carrying the banner mm-hmm. of the Portland food world than um, than Greg Higgins, um, and to have had him have the pleasure of meeting him firsthand today for the first time. That's how I. I'm out there. Right. You, oh, yeah. And there's, there's not, not a lot of people him. you don't know. Right. But and, I, I watched the introduction right here. Yeah. So, it was, and, you know, it's not that I pride myself on knowing everybody, but it's being out there for a few years, meeting a lot of people. Uh, I hadn't yet had the opportunity. It was a real pleasure. And I, I think people will find listening to Greg very informative and interesting. Right at the Fork is supported by Upserve. Upserve is the cloud-based restaurant management system serving up everything you need to know to run a smoother operation and exceed guest expectations. It's your restaurant. Run it like you mean it with Upserve. Visit Upserve.com to request a demo today. Tell them you're a Right at the Fork listener and get special pricing. The Chew Dining Club. Chew Dining Club gives you rewards and intel from Portland's best restaurants. Check in at participating establishments, and you'll get rewards you want, like free pizzas, beverages, and extended happy hour deals, plus exclusive information and invites to fun food events. Chew. Find it on iTunes or Google Play. Leanne Bach of M Realty. Choosing the right realtor can make or break the buying or selling experience in real estate. Leanne Bach is in tune with the ever-changing Portland landscape, especially as it pertains to our food and restaurant world. Why not work with someone who's in step with you? Find Leanne at LeanneBach.com. L-E-A-N-N-E-B-A-C-H.com. And by Zupan's Markets. Unsurpassed quality from the best meats and wines to the freshest baked goods, flowers, and craft beer. Emphasizing locally sourced items. Zupan's has been inspiring food lovers and local chefs for over 40 years with the very best Northwest bounty in Portland. West Burnside, Southeast Belmont, Southwest McAdam, and Lake Oswego. Zupan's Markets. Love your food. At least, at least we know you didn't have a tough trip over here. No, I was just sitting on the patio actually. Just buzzed down Monday's Chef's Day, you know, hanging out in the garden. Where is the garden? Uh, my house, I live in Southwest, out by Hillsborough, or Hillsdale, really. Oh, okay. I'm not too far from there. Yeah. So has that been your, uh, is that where you've been since you moved here? Uh, no, I kind of, when I first moved to open a Heathman, I was uh, a block from the Heathman, because when you open a hotel, you know you're going to be a busy guy. Yes. So. And and that's going to be a little busy again. Yeah. Vitaly doing his, I'm, I'm glad somebody there. else has got to deal with it. Has, has he come to you at all to say? To, well, we uh, chatted a little bit. He just wanted to give a nod and say, yeah. I'm 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 gonna give it a go. So, yeah, that's a big go, especially yeah. with everything else he's got going on. Yeah, um, I am so glad to have you here. I really am, and uh, it's such a pleasure and a treat and an honor to meet you, because I've been playing around in this Portland food world for uh, quite a few years now. Sure, I've never run into you. Yeah, I, I keep a low profile. Yeah, <laughs> and why is that? I like to just do what I do, and you know, I'm not a wave the flag kind of guy I, you know when there's stuff to talk about uh you know i do a lot of appearances here and there talking about food issues and things and uh, that's when i take my time to speak and the rest of the time i'm playing in the dirt or baking bread in my oven or doing those kind of things so you're the real thing i mean because you're not really as a as a significant restaurant owner chef in portland you're not spending your time doing a lot of social media marketing you're just you're organically making incredible food. Yeah. Well, that's my, my gig is to, to be passionate about food and instill that in other people, and I do that with my staff and my friends, and, you know, that's, that's what makes it work for me. You know, speaking of your staff, running around your website a little bit, what really stands out is how many people have been with you since you started. Yeah, we hit our 20th a few years ago, and uh, we, did a, uh, a, we did a checklist because we wanted to do some special uh, Thank yous to people. I had a potter do these really nice commemorative bowls. 
uh, to give to all the people that had been there since the day one. And it was a pretty amazing number, really, that that many people had been there 20 years was impressive. Especially in a in a place where so many new things have happened. Sure. And someone's, there's got, there have to be other opportunities out there, obviously. Well, and they're sticking with what works. Yeah. My only concern is with all the stairs, we're going to have trouble with all the walkers and stuff, you know. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And it probably wasn't an issue in 1994. No, the things were a little more spry. But yeah. yeah, and regulations and sure and so forth. So you've been in the same location for all those years. Yeah. Right, the clo- court, the closest restaurant to where we record. Yeah. Except for the one downstairs, the little deli that has changed hands. I don't six think it's, I don't even think it's there anymore, Chris. Oh. <laughs> it's it's a bunch of tables where people go to Starbucks and then take their lunch there, or they bring their lunch home and they oh, right there. But the other yeah, we created annex, maybe. There you go. I don't think there'd be too many people that would complain about that. <laughs> no, and you've never. So, have you considered opening? You we, did. I, I actually. Read yeah, we were. You were, we're, we're look. We're looking at it for a while. Uh, thinking of a, a real casual concept that would focus some of the charcuterie stuff that I like to do. Piggins. Piggins. Yeah, but we just never quite got it to click the way we wanted it to do. So, and and retrospective, that was right before things took the nosedive, and so it's probably fortuitous we didn't push forward at that point. So. Do you think you'd ever rekindle that? Uh, I think my focus is just keeping the ship running and uh, you know doing the other stuff that's meaningful to me. So. Uh, and I've got little things going on. I'm working on some charcuterie projects and things like that. So, Cool. So you grew up in upstate New York outside of Buffalo. Yeah. Did I see Darien on your... You oh, know? God. Yeah. Well, I grew up in Fairfield County, but I, when I, I spent most of my years in, um, outside of New Haven, okay. in Guilford. Okay. But I grew up in Darien. Okay. I usually college, say that. College mates that were from that area. Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah. And we're pro- I think we're the same age. Mm-hmm. We may know them. Yeah, I went to Hartwick. I don't know if you know that place. Yeah, no, I've heard of Hartwick, but yeah. I, I guess we won't bore everybody on the podcast. <laughs> yeah. But you can throw some names out, and <laughs> yeah. I bet if they're my our year, did you graduate high school in '76? Correct. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. I can't. I haven't outed myself on my age here, and I'm sorry if I just outed I think you. And you you kind of do. Yeah, just by, the, by, by, by how by I sound. Well, no, but 76. Well, I mean, that we know. What a great year to graduate. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Do you remember the tall ships? Oh, coming of course. In? Yeah. Yeah. I went to, I think I saw a concert in Boston and they're in the harbor and it's quite a cool thing. Yeah, you know, they brought in all that pot from Columbia. I don't know if you knew <laughs> Those that. Those were the guys, huh? Yeah, no, <laughs> they came in on the tall ships. It was a crazy summer. Not that I had anything to do with it. You know, isn't it cool that we don't have to be, we can just talk about that now. Just be a little bit more open about it. Yeah, that's, that's what I like about it. One of the things I like about it. So you, uh, upstate New York, and then I spent... 1977 in Syracuse. Mm-hmm. Were you there then in that, I was that year? In because... o- Oneonta. And... Oh, so you went through that winter. Yeah. What were your memories of that winter there? Well, one of them was uh, I was on a camping trip, a backpacking trip in the Catskills. No. We were right in the heart of that. It went down to, I don't even know, 40 below or something like yeah. that. And we were sleeping outside at that time. And we came down to uh, uh, the Appalachian club had a little thing called the Catskill Mountain Inn or something and there was a bunch of folks up from the city kind of really thinking they were roughing it and we came trekking down to dry our gear out and we had been up in the high country for a while and they thought we were just like you know Jeremiah Johnson or something. Well you're yeah when I look at that winter so I came the uh, January of 77 when I registered for classes it was Mm. 80 below with the wind chill yeah I mean I had a down jacket on which were new then by Mm. the way and and I wasn't, I was nowhere near warm and comfortable. So were you, you weren't hiking in the winter. Yeah, we were sleeping outdoors, middle of December when that was like that, yeah. You're not, I couldn't even be in a dorm room. <laughs> <laughs> well, I had a different idea of fun back then. Yeah, so what was, so tell us a little bit about your uh, childhood, which caused you to be, uh, have developed such a love for food. Uh, grew up with a, a single mother. My father died when I was young, and she raised a bunch of kids. It's a small town, farm town, uh, so we had a big garden. We worked on farms as kids, and she packed and preserved and pickled and did all those things, baked, and uh, inspired us. We were basically you know, slave labor because we had to help pick and, and process everything, get it ready for canning and that. So uh, I just kind of took a knack to it. I liked it and uh, never got away from it. Didn't tend to pursue it as a career, but in high school— um, I got an opportunity to take a friend's job who was leaving for college, which was at the local creamery. There's a small uh, cheese plant there, cheese factory. Not really a factory, very small, uh, small-scale dairy. And uh, so for three years in high school, I worked as a cheesemaker. 
uh, while I was going to school. And that kind of kindled a broader interest in food. You know, it, before that, I thought there was two kinds of cheese, you know, Swiss cheese and cheddar cheese. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, I, an American. What about yeah. that? Yeah. yeah. I mean, loosely <laughs> interpreted. Yeah. Uh, so anyhow, that that exposed me to a lot of different things, uh, uh, lots of different cheeses and things got me interested in, in how diverse food was. But I went away to college for something totally different and then ended up cooking in college uh, to help pay my way through school. Isn't that the way that Scott Dolich, who, yeah. you know, you're pretty close to. Yeah. That's how he started. Yeah. So it, and it gets under your skin. Uh, you know, I got out and I thought maybe I was going to go on to get my master's, but I want to take some time off and then one thing led to another and I kept pursuing the cooking. So, And what did you do between graduation from Hartwick? I assume you graduated and, um, and when you got to Portland. So that's, that's a 14 year gap. Well, a lot of, uh, goofing off. I love biking and skiing, hiking. So, uh, I biked across the country, uh, did that twice, found that really once was during school, once was after school, uh, college. And then, um, uh, Ended up in Idaho for a while with some friends in the Sun Valley area and liked that, but it got a little, it's kind of remote, and uh, I was cooking there and doing some art still. Uh, I got my degree in, in fine art printmaking. Um, and then eventually chased a gal to Seattle and uh, settled down there for a while and then started kind of breaking into the restaurant scene there. So, And what brought you down to the Heathman? And by the way, it wasn't 14 years because you had some time at the Heathman before you opened Higgins. So. Yeah, um, so I... I'd, I'd seen this trend of chefs getting involved. Bradley Ogden was a big name at that time with Compton Place and that, and that chefs were getting involved with hotels, and uh, that intrigued me because it seemed like there's an interesting vehicle, different format to work in. I had been working for small restaurants, and I got an opportunity when the Seattle Sheraton opened to go on their staff there, and I got a pretty, uh, I don't know why they gave me the position they did. They must have just run out of people, and they put me in charge of the main kitchen. Um, were you Were you ready? I was like 20 two years old, maybe something like that. No, so you weren't ready. <laughs> Who at 22 is ready to run anything. Yeah, exactly. But nonetheless, you know, that was where I ended up. And, uh, that turned out eventually I was stuck around there for a while, but, uh, the guy who's the number two guy in the kitchen is a 225 person kitchen staff there. I mean, we're talking a big operation. And, um, he originally was interviewed to open the Heathman in 84. And so I got a call from him. I was up in British Columbia, and he said, I want you to come down. I want you to be my executive sous chef on this thing. And I was a little dubious because he was a little kind of a crazy guy. But I, nonetheless, I took a trip down to see what was going on and liked the looks of it. And uh, then so I took the job, and I was here in June, I guess, and we started the whole process. It looks much like it does now. It was just gutted. It was just empty. Um, No equipment, no nothing. And we watched them put the hotel together and design the kitchens and uh, we opened in September, and then he kind of went off the deep end in like November, December, and uh, it was your baby. They they turned it over to me, and you know, all of twenty six years old or whatever it was. So, so what else was going on? I mean, we've read about it. As a matter of fact, Karen just did something in Portland Monthly about way back when. But when you got here, what else was going on in in the food world? At the well, time? you know, it's uh, I've been here for a while now, thirty some years. And I've seen distinct changes, and it kind of is in like 10-year chunks. Like the 80s were kind of, when I got here, I thought it was sort of, I, I, no disrespect, but there was just a handful of like restaurants that I thought were of, of note. There was, there was not the kind of scene we have here at all. And um, bakeries were pretty f- rudimentary, and the products were around. You had to go looking for them, but there were great products. Uh, and there were only 30 wineries. You know, we have 600 wineries now. So it's, you can see that exponential expansion of things. Um, so it was easy to have everybody's wine on your list back then. But, I mean, try and do it now. Forget about it. It's like you, just when you take it off the list, they come into dinner, you know. And they're like, <laughs> so, uh, so big plateaus and changes, you know, used to be one or two kinds of olive oil. Then suddenly there's a dozen kinds of olive oil. Suddenly there's 50 kinds of olive oil. Uh, you know, three farmers markets. There was Beaverton, Hollywood, and even the Portland farmers market that we all revere. I can't even remember what year that started. That was late 80s, maybe early 90s, uh, and it was down under the Broadway Bridge. And uh, so the, incrementally those things happened. And, uh, you know, I started baking at the hotel because I couldn't find bread that I was really excited about. And, I mean, what other executive chef bakes the bread for the hotel, you know, kind of thing. But I've always been kind of get in there and do it, so... That was my scene. And then we opened a bakery subsequent to that, which eventually became South Park. 
and uh, so there's just been a lot of change. I don't know. It's you know, how do you encapsulate thirty some years? You know, it's especially with what's going on in the la- gone on in the last ten. Yeah, right? so, yeah. So it's and it's accelerating. You know, so do you think there's room? Uh, there's always room. I mean, I think what's just amazing about the whole scene that we're in is that there always seems to be somebody who comes up with it, something even crazier and seems to be able to make a go of it. I mean, a few people get pushed out, but, you know, different concepts, whether it's on the artisan, you know, crafting a food basis or it's on actually prepared food, um, there seems to be a lot of room for a lot of different ideas, you know, and yeah, there's shakeouts periodically, but that's going to be the way it is. So, Do you think, um, you know, we can get pretty provincial here. Do you think that um, the rest of the country is looking at Portland to for some trends and some and and good ideas. Um, I think so. It's 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 so hard to separate. You know, when you travel, you go back east or you go anywhere in the country or abroad for that matter. Uh, then you can step back and realize just the wealth of what we have here, the diversity of the product and the quality of the product. Uh, what we take somewhat for granted. In, in like everything, beer, bread, wine, you know, on and on and on, all those ingredients. Um, so, and I don't think that's something you can easily imitate. You know, it's not like you can just suddenly whip up an amazing diversity of seasonal product. It's, that takes a very long time. In some places it can't really happen, you know, as, at the level it happens here. So I think that's what defines what we do is the wealth of, of things we have to work with. Um, so we're fortunate, uh, but and people love that, and that's what draws people here, of course, either as tourists or to come here and, and to settle down. Um, so it's 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 an interesting comparison between here and Seattle because they have nearly the same diversity of product, but they've got some you know urban issues that make it a little less accessible as it is here. So, so. I've seen Ethan Stoll lately posting quite a bit about politics in Seattle mm-hmm. and what's going on up there. So I know the cost of entry is is high there but we're catching up here mm-hmm. it used to be i know he used to be tell me that he was a little envious of what it took to open a restaurant in portland versus mm-hmm. what he had to do in seattle but i think that's changing a little bit yeah i think it, it, of course it has you know it's all this you watch the, just the development downtown right now the surge that's going on and that's just all that drives it it drives cost of housing cost of everything so so it's a little riskier now because so when you opened up Higgins, that was a big, that was risk because there wasn't anything like it really in no. town. Um, what uh, what were your thoughts at the time, I, I, and how did you hook up with Paul, your mm-hmm. partner there? How did that How did that all come about? How did Higgins? Open? Um, well, you know, I, it was a. I used to pop in there once in a while for a drink, just because it was a. It had the feel of an old East Coast bar. I always liked the bar space in there, and has we've relatively left that alone. Uh, and a little bit of change in the remodeling, but left it pretty much as it was. Um, and Paul worked there, and he uh, attended bar there, but he also worked as a uh, food sales rep for Rykoff uh, and called on us at the Heathman and gradually, you know, earned some of our business, and we got a rapport going. And, you know, I had been pretty much, I'm a, a single-minded sort of forward-focused guy, and I I had already come to the conclusion I was probably going to want to open my own place at some point when the right situation came along. And so Paul was uh, probing me about that, and we had discussions about it over time. And uh, he became aware that the people, the three partners in the Broadway Review, were going to close it down and look to sell the property or sell the business. And uh, so we started discussing the possibility of that. And uh, I liked the downtown area because I had been there for over 10 years, you know, at that point. So I uh, wanted to continue to kind of, you know, work in, in this kind of vicinity because I knew my clientele and stuff. So so you were at the Heathman then for 10 years? Yeah. Oh, I didn't realize that. Yeah. So you were only, yeah, you were young. You were uh, 26? I mean, 26, I think, yeah. Wow. So. A few years have passed. Yeah, water over the dam, yeah. So, and um, and you're still... Working hard. I mean, there are a lot of people in your shoes who've stepped back a little bit and let the restaurants go there, just run, out, run not by themselves, but step back a little bit. You're still actively involved in gardening and, and sourcing and everything. Yeah, you know, I butcher a uh, pig every Wednesday, uh, do all the, most of the fish and meat butchery and cutting, a lot of the sauce making, design all the plates, uh, make all the sausage. I'm, I'm my hands in everything. 
But my job is I'm not the quarterback on the busy nights now. I let the young guys do that because they want to they want to you know play that that position. And uh, my job is to make them successful. So I make all the components that they assemble into the dishes that I put together with my staff and uh, and teach. I mean, I think that's the reason that we have a good crew is that I'm in there on a daily basis and I'm involved in the process and I'm sharing, you know, I've been fortunate to work with some really great people and have assembled a pretty sizable body of knowledge and I want to share that. I can't do anything with it if I just, you know, leave it to rot. So, so you do, you lecture outside of your employees at Higgins. You Go outside and talk about food. Yeah, I did. Uh, I spent like, oh gosh, I, 15 years probably, 10 years at least, on the board of the uh, National Board for the Chefs Collaborative. Uh, so I did a lot of work with them, traveling around, doing presentations, talking about food origins and all these kind of things and future origins of food and responsible sourcing and all that. Um, and I do work for uh, educational groups and things. I've got a, a presentation I'm supposed to give for the Master Gardeners, and I'm going to Hawaii at the end of the month to talk to a group, a think tank that the Department of Agriculture there has put together about developing local food systems and what, what is it that catalyzes and makes those things happen and, and how do different role players be involved in that process. Was, were, was there any discussion of that kind 15 years ago, 10, 15 years ago, or is that something that everyone's aware of now? I mean, I think we're way more aware and uh, thinking about what we're eating. Yeah, more. definitely more aware. I mean, when we were, uh, when I was putting Higgins together, uh, the concept prior to opening and had described, I used to do some consulting work for a couple of restaurant companies and uh, they said, what's the restaurant of the future look like? This is probably in the, like, I don't know, 1990, early 90s, something like that. And I said, well, the restaurant of the future is going to be more focused on food and origins and sourcing and those things are going to become more and more important. And they're like, what are you saying? I said, well, I could see a restaurant using you know, all locally sourced organic food and they were, they blew their minds. They thought I was a crackpot. Um, and now they'll think you're a crackpot if you're not doing that. Yeah, exactly. Right? In so, this town. So, yeah. So early on we did, uh, we used to hold the local Chef's Collaborative meetings at the restaurant on Sunday mornings. And so all of the local crowd would come in and we'd, you know, 20, 30 of us would sit around and we'd have a presentation on some topic and discuss the topic and then talk about activities we we're doing, tours and, you know, all kinds of things of that nature. Um, and with time, gradually, I had to, I wanted to relinquish my role in that because I was just spreading myself too thin. Um so I've, now I've just stepped back, and when somebody contacts me to do something, to make a presentation or you know, to you know, write an op-ed piece or whatever it is, then I, I use my time for those kind of things. Oh, that's cool. So you've put quite a few people, quite a few of the chefs. I think we're on like that. Uh, Michael Russell did that six degrees of separation oh, chart yeah. a couple of years sure. ago. And, of course, Higgins is right there in the middle, and a lot of people have been... I've worked with you for you. Um, are there any out there that you can that you remember thinking they're going to be they're going to do really well in this business? Well, there's there's some that I've lost track of because you know they just you know they're sort of like fireworks. Sometimes they just go off and you don't know which direction they're going off off to wherever Texas or you know things like that. So I've got guys that I've kind of kept a little bit of tabs on that are all over the place, back east, down south, uh, up in the mountains things like that. Uh, locally, you know, Scott Dolish worked with me for a while. He was a great guy. I, I knew he was going to do good things. Brad Root early on, who's up in Vancouver. Um, uh, Vito. He's also in the Pearl now too, right? Mm -hmm. Brad, he's got the, the hairy lobster. Isn't that his? No, I don't think that's his. That's someone else. And Brad's got, uh, he had a, he, I think he sold his pizza place. He has Roots and then he's got, uh, I forgot what the name of the other one is. Oh, okay. There. So it's probably yeah. the people who have the pizza place who opened that. Yeah, that know. could be, yeah. Okay. I made that um, and, and then. And Vitaly, so did you guys, you both opened your restaurants about the same time, right? Yeah, I think Vito opened, uh, uh, I was talking about Vito DeLulo. He was one oh, okay. of the guys. But anyhow, they're, they're, it's a long list. But, but Vitaly, uh, Vito Vitaly, uh, yeah, they opened, I think, a year after us. He was uh, in the scene kind of looking around. I think he worked a little bit at a couple places before they opened, yeah. Were you were you in touch with him because at the you know you look back now and you can see Paley's place and Higgins and they were at the same time. Yeah, we, but we don't mean, necessarily know if you guys were palling around. No, we uh, well, it's, I'll, I'll be honest. I don't hang out with a lot of chefs because <laughs> you know I don't watch the Food Network and I don't hang out with a lot of chefs just because I got stuff I'm doing and uh, since I'm in the kitchen all day, I don't want to hang out with a bunch of guys and talk shop. So, but we cross paths constantly at events and you know that's it, the life that we're in. We see each other more. 
uh, often at events, whether it's here or in New York or whatever, than we do uh, necessarily on a daily, weekly basis. Just here, it's just when we're we're called to to put on some big, you know, deal. That's when we kind of catch up with each other usually. So, do you get into each other's restaurants at all? Yeah, a bit. I mean, I'm I'm you know uh, the low profile extends to that I. I've got this gigantic garden, so I, I don't go out a lot. I mean, I, I've got a few places I go. I like to check up on people, but uh, I try and stay pure to my thinking in food. So I find if I start going out too much and focusing on what other people are doing, I lose my direction in what I'm doing. Really? Just yeah. a, a meal or two out is going to? No, I just think just getting too caught up in the, I mean, it's just a personal thing. I'm, it's just the way I'm wired. I like to, I've got sort of an ongoing kind of dialogue in my head about food and uh, what I'm doing now and how that's going to evolve. And it's mostly governed by the, the trail of ingredients and the changes, the microclimates and stuff. So uh, I don't want to like eat somebody else's food and think maybe I should do something more like that. You know, mm. that's Has that happened to you on the few times you go out? No, you know, it happens more in uh, travel is what I use that for. Mm-hmm. So like in January, I was in Sicily for three weeks and uh, just, adding some fresh material into my creative process, but not mining it locally, mining it somewhere else that I'm intrigued by. So um, it's just, you know, maybe it's a, it's sort of the relational creative artist thinking. It's the way, the way I like to think about stuff. So. so when you travel domestically, are you able to just go into any restaurant? Do you have to do the research? To, do you feel like you need to go to the right kind of restaurant to experience uh, the locavore culture where you are or can you go into a pizza hut not that you would do that but, <laughs> but some, somewhere between a pizza hut and that i don't know yeah typically uh no matter where i'm going if i'm gonna be eating out which typically i'm i'm on the road unless, yeah, yeah. like on vacation sicily i had a place that had a pizza oven and a, we were doing a lot of cooking as well as eating out and stuff but that's sicily that's yeah. that's different that's I was a different thinking, thing you know, if you go back to buffalo yeah and i don't know if you do oh, i do go back to buffalo but do. uh, i don't not generally for food yeah. No. So, what do you do when you're in Buffalo? What hang out with you? my family. <laughs> right. So, what are they eating? Uh, well, they ask me to cook, and then they say, "Don't make it fancy." <laughs> <laughs> so, I'll make mac and cheese, or you know, that kind of thing, roast chicken. And but it's going to be a fancy mac and cheese, right? It's not going to be. Kraft. Yeah, but it's never quite like Kraft. Is the problem? Mm. You know, it's like, yeah, you don't so get that a, yellow, that yeah. yellow number five, quite right. Yeah. Yeah. They're like it almost tastes like the packaged stuff. I'm like, so would they? Do they appreciate that yours is different? Or are they wishing they would have had the package stuff when you make yours? Yeah, maybe they're just being nice to me. I don't know. It's, <laughs> I, it does, it's no, it's no problem. I'm, I'm over it. So, you know, so I don't worry about that. But uh, no. So the, the whole thing about the, uh, I, I do research because if I'm gonna uh, go out for a meal, I wanna, I wanna, I wanna be it for a specific reason. I wanna find out if this guy's doing, what's he doing? Is he walking the talk and. You know, where's the ingredients from? And not that it has to be local, not that it has to be organic or any of that. I like really well-crafted food, either on a just basic level or on a very high level. But, um, you know, that's if it's going to be so I can learn a little and enjoy it, those are the things I look for. So. And a big welcome to our new sponsor, Upserve. It's the industry's largest and most comprehensive cloud-based restaurant management system. We think we have a lot of listeners that could benefit from this. Mm-hmm. And as a matter of fact, there are already over 8,000 restaurants across the country who use Upserve's analytics and point-of-sale solutions to run a smoother operation and what I think everyone in Portland should want to do, exceed guest expectations. Absolutely, and and Upserve also helps you kind of know what menu items are helping drive repeat business. You can find out what people are coming in and ordering often, help your uh, staff know what to recommend, it also help you know uh, how to better manage your restaurant in a better way. I think in the I think in this world where we, where we have owner operators and small businesses, it could, there's nothing that could be more helpful. Because Absolutely, you can't do that yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, so, visit upserve.com for reduced pricing. You can request a demo. They have a little video there that explains, gives an overview of what they do, and of course, when you if you do contact them, tell them tell them Chris and Court sent you. And uh, and they'll give you special pricing. Very nice. The website again is upserve u p s e r v e dot com. So, what are the keys when you're thinking about it and even lecturing about it to sourcing food locally? There are lots of different aspects to that. There's the there's the health aspect. There's the economic aspect. There is the um, taste aspect to food. What is is it are 
obviously all of those things are important, but is there any one thing that you think if someone focuses on can drive them in the right direction? Well, uh, you know, I kind of think that just starting with the local aspect is, is the biggest key because the rest of those things kind of solve themselves when you do that. Uh, not that local means it's necessarily clean or totally responsible, but the most important thing is turning around. Uh, you know, we're, we're losing farmers. You know, there's, it's, it's like less than a percentage and a half of the population in this country is involved in producing food for the rest of the country, and that's a precarious balance. And just on a philosophic basis, looking forward, that I don't want to count on one to one and a half percent of the country producing the food for everybody. That's a ridiculous situation. Uh, so we have to put people back on the land and get people to grow food and to be appreciated for growing food. And, uh, you know, shrinking the size of farms and increasing the number of farmers is the way to do that. And, and localized food systems do that. And that's really what's key to me. So uh, if they're making connections, whether it's a consumer at the farmer's market or a CSA or chefs and them, their sourcing practices, help to turn that tide. Uh, Oregon started that happening. We actually started having more people involved in agriculture each subsequent year over the last three to four years than we have at any point in recent history. So that to me is a big success and it speaks to a lot of uh, philosophical changes in where people are getting their food. And um, we got to just continue that trend. And then the rest of it starts to solve itself. When people are buying that quality of freshness of local food, it's going to show unless they're horrible cooks or something, but uh, I don't think that's the case. So it's really uh, sort of reinvigorating local economies and, uh, you know, putting people back in the land. You know, and here, something I don't, you know, I first of all, I didn't notice the food world when I lived in Connecticut. I mean, it was pizza. So, I mean, there were other great restaurants, and mm -hmm. I went to them. But I wasn't, first of all, they, they, they didn't have open kitchens, for one, which I think is, Something I like doing is sitting at the chef's counter, and when you're watching sure. food prepared, it's a different experience. But um, wasn't as aware of it, but you've got chefs here like you, restaurant owners who have their own, not only gardens, little farms, but, you know, right at the restaurant, too. Mm -hmm. They're in the ba in back. Sure. And um, I always thought that was kind of a strange concept, that it's just being grown in an urban environment. There's... Mm -hmm. Pollute, might be pollution around. That's the first thing I thought of. Mm -hmm. But um, but I guess is uh, when you when you've got the person who's actually preparing your food, making it like leather stores, mm -hmm. you know, sure. has an incredible garden on top yeah. of his restaurant, and really cares about it, loves it. Um, and there aren't a lot of you doing that. Well, I mean, uh, logistically, uh, it's a challenge. Yeah. Uh, time wise, it's a challenge. You know, figuring out a way. Like uh, I have, I live in Hillsdale because we have like a half acre, give or take. And so it's a fairly large little piece of land for an urban type uh, setting. And um, I've got all kinds of tricks that after 20 plus years of doing this that allow me to keep it in productive year round. It's, I've got a greenhouse and I've got citrus trees and all kinds of crazy stuff. Um, but I, we produce food out of the garden all year. And, but to do that time wise, I have to have taught myself and uh, some techniques and methods that make that practical to uh, and still have a, my, you know, regular chef's workload going on. So i got to be able to make all that happen and hear bits and pieces throughout the course of the week. And, you know, there's a lot of timers and irrigation systems and all kinds of stuff like that. that uh, and then I've per kind of perfected it as much as you can perfect gardening because it's a, it's a ever-evolving, challenging sort of system. So, Does it help you when you're dealing with farmers? That obviously must oh, help. Oh, sure. So yeah. you, know, you know your shit. Yeah, we save a lot of seeds, and we, we share seeds with growers. And, you know, I test garden stuff at my place, and when I get excited about a variety that's new and maybe not common in the market at all, uh, then I can go to, I know, you know, I've got a group of, I don't even know, 30 different growers probably, uh, and I know which ones are better at which things and open to different things, and then we start sharing some. We have somebody grow that on a larger scale and see if it's productive and, and worth their effort and, all those kind of things, but that in turn fuels the creative process and the writing of the menus and the cooking of the dishes and all that kind of stuff. So it's this constant interchange of those things. Is there anything that you're serving at Higgins right now that is n new to you that you got excited about? New, uh, some new variety. Uh, right now, I think we're we're just about at the cusp of. I'm a uh, most people wouldn't know it, but I'm an absolute chili fanatic. 
uh, like rare chilies, crazy chilies, up to the hottest thing in the world. How many do year. you have you grown? I, some crazy number. Oh yeah, I, I usually have a couple dozen going at a time. Right now, I've got some weird ones. I'm still waiting on because they're from Peru. Some friends brought the seeds back from Peru, and we don't even know exactly what they are. They're in the ahi limon family or ahi amarillo, but I don't know which they are. And they're now seven feet high. There's these insane plants, and they're just starting to flower and set some fruit. So. Uh, we're in a hurry up and wait on those, find out what that's all about. But other ones are starting to produce. Those those subtropical chilies that are the most interesting ones flavor-wise have long growing seasons. So I have to start those. I have a grow room in the basement, and I start those in, like, Valentine's Day and then gradually transplant them into bigger formats. And then eventually by, you know, May, maybe they can go out in the greenhouse, uh, June or so they can go outside. So, you know, you're babying those things from Valentine's Day until, you know, early October to to bring them through to fruition. Um, but that's all part of the thing. You know, it's all part of the cycle. So, so are they spicy chilies? Because I oh, don't equate sp- yeah. spice with Higgins. Yeah, we, we <laughs> I use a lot of spicy chilies, but in discrete uh, applications. But, yeah, I have Trinidad Scorpion, which is you know considered the in the top three ghost chilies, Buccilochia. Uh, these are you know chilies in the one million plus Scoville unit category. My eyes are watering just thinking about this are you spy no look at me i'm pasty white guy i I have a threshold and uh it's pretty it's fairly mild but it certainly has expanded a bit since i moved to this city well to me chilies are one of the defining uh aspects of american cuisine uh there's more varieties here than there are anywhere in the world um they originated here of course but they've traveled greatly all across into asia and whatnot um, but the diversity of flavors, whether you're talking super hot to super aromatic to mild, mellow, whatever, uh, it's all in that family of plants. And it's, it's so you can use them in different applications. We have to be careful when someone comes in and wants us to spice something up. We're like, how spicy right, is right, that? Right. You know, it's like. Do you, you bring, out the, bring out the uh, scale here and like yeah. point, point to the level you want? Yeah, it's the exploded head one. Don't, right. Don't order that. But. You know, you never know. So, but we we try and be quite discreet about. It, but we do use chilies in a lot of things. So, yeah. And um, and you're also your love of cheese when you were a kid has expanded, obviously, and and blossomed. That's probably not the right word. <laughs> um, but you you have you have you deal with a lot of varieties of cheese. You're we, we producing love, a lot yourself. Love cheese. Well, it's it's you know that's a kind of a funny aspect now um, with the way current health regulations are being uh, enforced and regulated. Um, it's the, the onus has been put on the county health people to be able to inspect all these different areas of production. And so some of those are becoming more and more problematic in a restaurant because they're trying to apply USDA standards to restaurant operations. And most restaurants aren't set up for it. So cheese falls into a big area there that's of, of concern. So basic cheeses, like really fresh cheeses, ricotta and mozzarella and things like that, that's not a big problem. But if you're going to try and make ripened and aged cheeses, then that, that really becomes complicated. And uh, so that's more and more difficult for those things. And uh, I guess rightfully so for, from a public health standard, if people aren't con- cognizant and competent at doing those things. And there's a bunch of other challenges like that in the you know, do-it-yourself world of the American restaurant chef. There's a lot of projects that we all have kind of taken on at different times that are now becoming harder and harder to uh, justify from a, a, a food safety aspect. So uh, you're going to see that impact restaurants in different ways over the, the next few years uh, as the health people become more educated on what to look for and what questions to ask and things like that. So I think it's going to define the restaurant and artisan food economy differently. And we're going to see the rise of more and more food artisans who specialize like you would expect to see in Europe in most places. I think we're going to see that become more prominent here as well. So that's what I see in the next decade is a lot more uh, people crafting particular things, whether it's in the dairy family or in the meat family or other aspects. So it's, is it necessarily that regulations will be loosened or just more understood by the regulators? The uh, products will be more I, understood I don't by think the regulators. The, I think the process will be more regulated. And uh, in so doing, there will be certain um, uh guidelines that just aren't feasible in restaurants at times, you know, short of having your own room just for doing cheese or, you know, a climate controlled situation for some of these different projects. So there's a lot of things that come into this and it's a complicated, it would be uh, a week's worth of programs to talk about them all. But 
there's no question that our society is very, very, you know, food safety focused, and that's going to drive how tightly all these things are regulated. And it's just going to make it more difficult for chefs to conduct certain practices. So. You think um, Portland is, where does it fall on the spectrum of regulation? Oh, we're, frustration for you. Uh, we're high on the radar, you know, on the food safety radar. And uh, I think that's just going to continue that way. Uh, if you're way out in the boondocks somewhere, you're probably going to have a lot easier go of it than somebody in the mainstream urban area. But sooner or later, they're going to push on all those regulations. So, Do you, because you've been around here a long time, does your familiar, familiar how come I can't say it? I didn't have enough coffee. You'll get morning. there. You'll get there. Well, that's your relationship. Yes, thank you. I can say it. I just wasn't coming out. Sure, Chris. Jeez, there's something going on. <laughs> did, I have a, did I have a little mini stroke before this? I don't <laughs> know. Um, but does your relationship with people, they, they know who you are. Are they, are they less guarded with you? In other words, is there maybe a little more leeway because I respected? I, I wouldn't say leeway. Uh, uh, there's certainly the ability to sit down at the table and discuss it, and I've had a lot of times – both over at the county health offices and in the restaurant uh, to discuss it. And, and you know, they're politely, well, if they feel that, you know, you're going in the wrong direction, they'll say, I think you should probably stop doing this. And, and you have to say, yes, sir, or yes, ma'am, and stop doing that. And um, so, but it's also, it just teaches you where things are headed. And then if you're, you know, want to stay ahead of the game, then you think accordingly. And go and take the proper classes for the right, be able to speak the lingo and write the plans that they're asking for, and substantiate whatever it is that's uh, being asked for, whether it's in the world of cured meat or making cheese or any of those things. Um, but it's going to become steadily more difficult to to do those more elaborate processes that could involve food safety issues. So. And it's not what you got into when you were when you were the executive sous chef at 22. No, right? You didn't know all this was going to be part of the the no, process, right? No, You're no. just going to cook. Yeah, things have gotten thick. <laughs> yeah, I would think, um, but but part of that is your passion and your doing. You've added more. Yeah, layers. Added more, yeah, added more layers. Um, is so as we talk about this a bit, and and uh, on the podcast right at the fork, and then with what I do with food events, it's always an issue. And I know I've talked to the, some of the folks at Eater. We seem to be in this town because it's growing so fast, focused on the new all the time. Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, what everything every everything gets talked about and some of the older restaurants have to hire publicists just to find a way to stay mm-hmm. new and fresh. But I don't see you doing that. I th- I think you stand proudly on Hig- Greg Higgins and Higgins as this doing what you're doing and doing it well and you don't it doesn't feel to me that you have to go out and talk about that. Is, is the restaurant doing very well without all that publicity? Um, I, yeah, I'd say so. We've seen this year really start to gain some speed. I think that's just general in the economy right now. Um, our focus really has always been about making sure we satisfy or do the, our very best to satisfy every person that takes a seat in that restaurant or bar. And um, so the, the, the passion is all about getting that best ingredients treating it in the most direct manner uh, that's appropriate and try and translate that to an enjoyable experience for the guest. And uh, we put a lot of effort into the service side as well. Uh, There's just certain aspects of hospitality that I think are falling by the wayside. Like what? Well, just the sort of overall, if there's an area that I'm often a little disappointed in when I go out, it's uh, in the service side. You know, brash, uh, inattentive service. I mean, that, uh, we try and offer service that uh, doesn't intrude, but anticipates the needs and and substantiates the guests' you know requests and and uh, anything they could possibly. It's an old school sort of approach to it. Whereas you can go and like you know, I've had the check put on the table while they're just after they've opened my wine and say, oh, if there's anything else, let me know. You know, I'm like, what is that? <laughs> just, or my favorite is when they. When you put your credit card in, and before looking, they say, "Did you need change?" Uh, I, I, to have to answer that is just so. So, but just you know, just a, an issue of just sort of uh, a little more polish. I'm, I'm not saying that on a snooty aspect. I'm just saying just on a, just a very subtle uh, quality caring experience. Um, I think that we 
often you get shorted on that. You know, it's a little little too. But it, it's something I think you've got. Um, you know, in a restaurant, it's easy for a lot of great chefs to teach technique and cooking. But who's out there? Te- well, there are some great people teaching front of the house mm-hmm. protocol. Um, sure. But sometimes it's missing in places you would think it would. That yeah. would be naturally there. Yeah, I, yeah, I think it's, but I, I think it's a little bit endemic right now that, you know, all you got to do is take the food to the table, you know, that sort of mentality. And it's much more than that if you really want to create a complete experience. So that's important to us is, is substantiating both of those. So if it, we maintain our successes, it's because people feel like they're appreciated and that they're fed well. They, they, they are offered interesting libations and, you know, everything the complete experience is what we try and provide. So, um, and and so uh, on the issue of, of going out and you know over over marketing, which is, is kind of one of my sort of things. I'm not an over marketer. I'm probably the under marketer. Um, it's because I just want to devote all my energy to the process and the product and the the the, the what we're providing, not to uh, run around talking about. It. I want to do it. So that's kind of what I've always been focused on. So. And um, so when we first, we didn't talk long ago, and when we first started talking, you had indicated you just wanted to focus on food. Is there a particular, is there something that caused you to want to come on the podcast? Uh, you know, I just thought people, you know, you know, the Bob Hope thing where they, you know, he had to have a parade to tell people he wasn't dead. <laughs> you know? So. Well, we're going to hope there are enough people learning that. Yeah. So uh, just thought, well, I might as well let people know I'm still kicking. And, uh, you know, uh, uh, people, I hear it all the time. They're like, oh, I was in the restaurant. I never see you. I'm like, that's funny. I have 60 or so hours a week I'm in that restaurant. <laughs> yeah, well, that's the reason. <laughs> Court, we, need to, we need to have a little meeting about that and ter- use that as some kind of hook line for the podcast. We'll let you know. You're, we'll let people know you're not dead. Right. Yeah. Some, something along mm-hmm. those lines. <laughs> so um, a lot of talk lately, and we've had a few conversations on the podcast about Service models, tip, front of the house, back of the house, the challenges there, and some of the law changes. How are those? How are you? Do you foresee some changes at Higgins? Or well, it? you know, it's there's kind of breaks down into a couple ways you can try and uh, anticipate that. Uh, what we've been doing is just watching uh, the various attempts at uh, <laughs> right now. There are attempts. Yeah, at at and seeing what kind of success is happening. Or failures, and uh, it seems like a pretty mixed bag yet. Um, it's an awfully complicated situation. Um, to me, there's sort of an ongoing, you know, there's been a great disparity in front house earnings versus back house earnings for as long as I can recall. And that's always been, uh, you know, flying the ointment because, you know, when, especially if you're in the back of the house, you, you know how much effort goes into that. But is there a magic solution to that? I mean, it's sort of like we're like trying to reinvent feudalism here. We're trying to figure out, you know, how to change what's been in place for all of everyone's memory. And uh, it's a flawed system. So what is going to be the right system? I don't know yet. I'm just, well, I'm watching like everyone else and just trying to see who comes up with the, the right combination of ideas or maybe it's a couple things that get merged to eventually create some sort of uh, solution to it. But uh, it's, you know, the whole wage structure that's coming with the changes in minimum wages uh, is going to have a tremendous impact on the business. And I don't know what the shakeout's going to be, really. I, I don't have a crystal ball, as, and I'm not a, I'm not a I mean, restaurant economist that I could say, oh, yeah, I know what's going to happen. So, yeah. Well, it's tough. You don't know what's going to happen, and only time will tell. And a lot of people are sitting back and saying, Let's let's see if there's some pioneers who can, as you just said, can figure this out. But there is no doesn't seem to be one model. The, but the I think the irony is the bottom line is for the consumer, the check, the that last amount almost looks the same. So mm-hmm. it's just the more talk about it that occurs in forums like this. And you see, you know, Oregonian talking about it. And, sure. Um, but the more that occurs, I think people will be a little more aware of it and uh, go somewhere with it. But it, it's it's something we weren't discussing until the last couple of years, and now it's a, it's an issue. Well, you know, there's a, a funny piece to the puzzle. It's not directly related to this, but uh, 
there's no culture that spends uh, a lower percentage of their income on food and a higher percentage of their income on medical care than our culture. No time in history has the, the percentage has been so flip-flopped as they are now. Um, and our, not the world, that the fine dining restaurant world that I live in as far as devaluing food, but our culture in general has kind of devalued food and commodified it. And uh, we're now, this is part of that piece now that, that we've driven the prices down so low on certain food items through subsidies, through all kinds of strange economic vehicles that um, we don't really know what food's supposed to cost. If you go to the farmer's market, you get an idea what food really costs, uh, real food. Um, but everybody doesn't eat real food. So then there's all this commodity food. It, it's a very jumbled situation. And it, it unfortunately, all that backs into the wage structure. And so what would the real cost, you know, if you like took away some of these gigantic commodity subsidies and things and uh, let the food settle out at the real cost of real food, all food. You know, but you're never going to do that because the big corporations control ab- Absolutely, but the it's, politics it's, on it. it's on a local scene. It's going to have a great impact because, you know, if uh, we change the wage structure as we're moving forward, it's going to have a giant impact on, on pricing. And, uh, and so doing, it's going to have an impact on volume of sales and, and successes and failures and all those things. So uh, we're headed into a really complicated, intriguing period. And um, I, w- I wish I could say I, I could you know, prognosticate, but I can't. I'm just like everyone else. I think the conventional wisdom is we're going to look more like San Francisco and Seattle mm-hmm. at some point with, a more, with more heart in, this, in the food system perhaps than Seattle. I don't know about San Francisco, but... Um, does that scare you at all that we're not that we're going to get away from that kind of connection and and that a lot of things are accessible because they're a little less expensive? So, you know, a meal out now may go from average ticket of forty some odd to sixty all of a sudden. Um, I think what's going to come with it is a shakeout. Of course, uh, you know, there's going to volumes probably are going to diminish at a lot of places and. Um, some places will have to fold. I mean, uh, it's just going to be the laws of, of, of economics at work. Um, could be scary. I don't know, really. I'm always just, you know, move forward and, you know, do your best. That's what you can do and then see how it all sh- settles out. So. so who are your most of your customers at Higgins? They've, obviously, you've got some, some of the most prized long-term customers in Portland, I would think. You know, it's uh, it's very diverse. Um, we're close to the university. We're close to the cultural district. We're close to a lot of the business stuff. So lunchtime, you know, there's a lot of, uh, you know, investment community, uh, business attorneys, things like that. But we get a lot of tourism, too, um, particularly in the summertime. I mean, it's an amazing amount of tourism from all over the world. Portland's a destination for lots of South America, Asia, Scandinavia, Europe, you name it. Is that... Do you see that as a big increase over the last 10 years? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, used to be, when we first opened 20 years ago, 23 or whatever it was, um, summers were pretty slow periods, with the exception of show nights and things like that. Wow, it's so beautiful here in the summer. Yeah, it just, people weren't so much downtown at that time, you know, in the early 90s, um, per se, you know. and uh, But uh, over time, over the 10 years after that, then, Give or take 10 years ago, we just saw this steady influx. The state's been really good. Travel Oregon's been phenomenal at marketing uh, and that using food as a good vehicle for marketing. So that's been really great for tourism. Um, and then we get in the evenings, we get all your you know folks going to concerts and shows and, and that stuff, plus hotel guests and not your yeah, normal things. So. You've got a nice location over there. Yeah, it's, it's it, when we first uh, put up the, the sign, you know, people were like, that's kind of the fringe of downtown. And we we're like, really? Yeah. And so it's changing. It has changed dramatically. Of course, you know, it's not the fringe of downtown anymore. But when I opened the Heathman 84, they said that was a fringe of downtown. I mean, that was pretty sketchy. I don't know. There's well, a, what a, was really downtown Burnside then? Uh, Pioneer Square was kind of the heart of things, you know. So four blocks away was yeah. Far from, wow. But there, uh, you know, there was a <laughs> shifting was, southward. There's a rundown theater and strip parlor across the street from the Heathman, uh, where the 1009 building is now, and the, the neighborhood was definitely uh, not what it was. I mean, the Heathman. When I first walked in, the the, the lobby, uh, the big paneled lobby bar room with the high ceiling and the chandelier, that was uh, a punk rock. Uh, disco called the cave and they had foam uh, spray foam stalactites and it was all black light 
and it was set up to look like some underground, you know, grunge cavern. And, you know, there was no nice dark paneling. It was just spray foam and black light, you know, stalactites and stalagmites. <laughs> Does that typify most of what's gone on downtown? Like, what what was Pioneer Square like then? Well, it, well they had redone it recently, so it was, you know, it was a nice, nice venue. It was the most showiest venue in Portland, whereas now we just sort of accept it as, you know, part of the part of the you know, the, the Landscape, scene. Yeah. yeah, but then it was quite quite the the big deal. So. Is there anything you're missing from back then that you just can't access now? You know, things are uh, we're all older. So. Yeah, yeah. There's I don't I can't think of anything specifically. I can remember some pretty good cold beers at Sam's Spot Tavern, but that's long gone under the bulldozer. So and uh, uh, oh, what was Rosemary's place called? Uh, uh, the Vat and Tonsure. I like that. The old Vat and Tonsure. That was a great place. But I never heard of that. Yeah. Any any places now that you um, you don't get out much? Yeah, I, so. I make the rounds a bit. Uh, I like Jose a lot. Uh, he does great stuff. I liked him. He and Christine are really nice. At Atala. Yeah, yeah. Atala on that. Uh, I go to a lot of weird little places. You know, little tiny Yuzu, a little Izakaya, and, uh-huh. and Beaverden, and uh, yeah. When I do go out, I find these little oddball little holes in the wall. But I show up and check things out. Amelie, I think, is kind of interesting. Over where uh, Carafe was, John's doing a good job there, across from you know, 200 Market. Mm-hmm. So yeah, we may, we bop around a bit, but uh, like tonight, pizza night. Monday night's pizza night at my place, so I fire up the wood oven and uh, we just you know make pizzas out of the garden. So, and what what kind of pizzas are you making tonight? Uh, what have I been tasked with? I believe uh, puttanesca uh, with a roasted Roma tomato sauce and chilies. Um, and then I think I'm doing a pesto and chanterelle, maybe with some padrones on it. I'm not sure. Very nice. I got to ask because anybody who listens to this knows I'm going to ask this, uh, this on this podcast. Do you do a white clam pizza? I have. I've do, well, let me say razor clam. Razor clam. Yeah. Okay. So nod to the local. Yeah. Right. But yeah. so you wouldn't have the shells on it then? No, no. no they're a little crunchy. Good. Good. Yeah. I need to know when that is. I'd, lo- I'd love to try that. Yeah. Well, you can... Uh, uh, you know, I'm not. You mentioned social media. I'm not a big social media guy, but uh, Pizza Monday is the one thing that I post. So, where do you post that? How it, come I've never? I just didn't know about it, and I'm I'm glad you came on the podcast. It took that to learn about it. Yeah. So yeah, every every uh, every time that oven gets fired up, whether uh, the oven stays hot for three days, it weighs eight tons. It's a big stone oven, and uh, so typical is making pizzas Monday afternoon. Like I leave here, I go home, mix the dough, and then start doing some gardening. Um, and then uh, we, we bake up the pies, and I take some crazy shots of them in some process or the ingredients leading up to them. I just post that. It's just, it's just kind of a little following of Pizza Geeks. That Is that a Facebook thing or Instagram? Yeah, it's Instagram? Facebook. Facebook, yeah. I don't like Instagram. I don't like the way it crops pictures. Oh, you know, we need to talk because I felt the exact same way for a long time, and then I learned about... I, I learned a couple little tricks, but I'm still not happy the way it frames. It's, well, but they just changed it. They, so did they? Now, oh, okay. you, now you can press a button, and it... Okay. You can do a landscape. All right, I need to be educated. Well, so here's the deal, just so you know. I was against it, and Heather, who was you know, with us on the podcast, was uh, encouraging me to use, because I, I take a lot of, sh- a lot of photography. And um, it wasn't until January 5, 2015 I started cranking it up, and I love it so much. I, everything I post to Instagram goes to my personal Facebook. Now they've made me make a decision whether it should go to personal no, or right. business. But uh, so... I have, I don't know how many, 7,000 followers now wow. just by posting. And it's not so much that, but I really enjoy it because mm-hmm. it's, a better, it's a better forum. You can, unlike Twitter, you can write all you want. Mm-hmm. You can tag people. You can tag people after the fact. Mm-hmm. Anyway, uh, well, just look, I felt the same way. Yeah. So, so just, it's Greg Higgins, it's the, but there's no picture. The thumbnail is the oven, a black bore on a big stone oven. Beautiful. Yeah. I have to get by to, to try the... Uh, to try the pizza. I understand you have an excellent burger, too. Oh, you know, the, so I grew up making a lot of pickles. So we've always, I mean, before pickling was hip, we've, I've been pickling, pickling, pickling my whole life. And um, so obviously pickles need a good burger. And so from the very beginning, pastrami and a burger were two things that have been, you know, just signature. I don't even call them signature. They're just essentials on a menu, you know. And... Uh, so yeah, we do Carmen Ranch beef, and it's just really great grass-fed beef, and a super simple burger. I'm not stuffing it, and I'm not wrapping it. I'm not good bun, good burger. 
That's what I am. I'm burger, cheese, maybe mushrooms, maybe grilled mm-hmm. onions, and great cheese and a great bun. Right. And a little ketchup. That's it. Yeah. We just had Crowd Cow, who was uh, a sponsor of ours, mm-hmm. and they're doing grass-fed. You can buy a share in a cow. Mm-hmm. And, Court, have you had any of those burgers yet? I haven't done the burgers yet. No. Oh, they're, man. They're on I the menu had, for this week. I just had them this week, and they're grass-fed, dry-aged burgers. Mm-hmm. And they're not, you know, you get about a pound, you get a pound pack. Mm-hmm. Best I've ever had. Great. That I'm cooking myself. Cool. So the grass-fed, it does make a difference. Oh, but they're really marbled. Yeah. There's, a lot of, there's a lot of fat in yeah. them. Yeah. Should have that great depth of flavor, that herbaceous kick. So, all right. So, I'm hoping that a lot of people who have not been to Higgins will hear this podcast and jump in there. What would you? Do you have anything you really suggest they order? We're one third vegetarian, half of it's vegan, one third seafood, and one third meat. Um, any of those categories, you know, we try and make sure there's something for everybody. So, uh, I would be, but I'd be remiss not to plug the charcuterie because it's a real personal passion and uh it's a great spread for you know you share one of those charcuterie boards for two or four people and you got a great start on things so and so higgins should be on the top of the vegan lists that are out there my wife does not eat meat nor does she eat pickles and how frustrating is what? that yeah yeah so uh, my dog's shocked when there's meat in the and house. did you know that when you married her uh yeah we met uh biking and well a short time i mean the first time i cooked for her, i think we went out on a couple of bike ride dates and then uh, I cooked her dinner one night and found out luckily I was cooking her some pasta with some some smoked salmon and not something that she she will eat some fish on occasion so uh, that's all good but um, no and it's it, I'll be honest uh, we eat that way we've got a giant garden occasionally we cook some meat in the oven or at the house but typically uh, they're you know classic Mediterranean meals, you know, for the most part, based on really good grains, really good vegetables, good cheese, that kind of thing. So, and how long have you been married? Uh, I should know that, right? Uh, going on thirty years, twenty-eight years. Oh, well, that's that's a long enough time to have to decide whether right. it's twenty-nine or thirty. <laughs> well, if you just celebrated your thirtieth, it probably wouldn't be a good idea that you forgot. No, no, no. no. Uh, well, that's great, and so, uh, so I'm sure that uh, that was a little bit of an attraction that you could cook like crazy. Um, yeah, but it's, you know, it's, 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 she's turned into like, uh, the, the toughest critic going. So, yeah, you know, look out for anybody out there and who thinks they're a food critic. You should, you've yet to meet Barb. So she, she, she's really good. She's got a great palate. So. Oh, great. Well, keeps, keeps you on your toes. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Really appreciate you coming in. Yeah, my pleasure. Really, Thanks. Really treat. Right at the Fork is hosted and produced by Chris Angeles and Court Johnson. Intro music by Ariel Varinas. Find links to her music in the show notes section. Connect with us on Twitter and Instagram at Food Podcast PDX or on Facebook at Right at the Fork or online at rightatthefork.com. Don't grab-